Good evening. I'm Marcus Leader, and I would like to invite you on a journey of discovery as I pull back the veil and give you a glimpse of the multiverse through the eyes of a Toltec shaman. So sit back, relax, turn up the volume, and turn down the lights. You're now listening to The Shaman's Brew. Thank you. 
And that was Possibility from the New Moon soundtrack. Tonight's show is a tribute to one of the legends in the occult and pagan communities, Isaac Bonowitz, who crossed over into the Summerland last week at the age of 60. Isaac Bonowitz was America's first academically accredited magician, graduating in 1970 with a B.A. in Magic and Thaumaturgy from the University of California at Berkeley. Isaac was an author, a musician, a lecturer, and founder of the largest neo-pagan druid organization in the world. He wrote several books, including the occult classic Real Magic, published in 1971. You can learn more about him and his work by visiting his website at neopagan.net. For those of you who did not know him or get a chance to hear him speak, I am playing one of his lectures in tonight's show as a tribute to the man and his work. My condolences and love go out to his family. With that, I present to you Isaac Bonowitz talking about the structure of craft ritual. Hi, I'm Isaac Monowitz, and tonight's ACE lecture is on the structure of craft ritual. Before I get started, I should probably review some of the definitions I'm going to be using this evening. As those of you who were here for my previous lecture may recall, I defined magic, among other things, as being a collection of rule of thumb techniques for getting your psychic talents to function more or less the way you want them to, you hope. Ritual, on the other hand, is any collection of ordered sequence of events that is designed to produce a particular altered state of consciousness within which you have access to and control over your psychic talents, at least insofar as the types of ritual we're going to be discussing this evening. A religion is any philosophical system that's been combined with a magical system and in which the primary orientation is towards entities that the people involved think of as spiritual entities. Witchcraft, on the other hand, is one of those marvelous terms that has about 15 meanings for any half dozen people you ask for definitions. So I'm going to go into a very, very brief rundown of the history of the word witch before we get started here. Once upon a time, very long ago, not quite when dinosaurs ruled the earth, but close to it, the word wicha, or wicha, depending on whether you were using the male or female version of it, was the Anglo-Saxon term that was used to refer to people who were engaged in particular sorts of activity. The root comes from wich, which means to bend or twist. And the basic concept seems to have been the idea of magic or sorcery. The old style, what I call classical witches, were usually elderly peasants of both genders who were involved in doing the same sorts of things that witch doctors and medicine men do all around the world. That is to say, they were healers, they were herbalists, they were midwives and occasionally abortionists, they were people who could predict the weather and who were ascribed a certain amount of control over the weather. Nobody thought of witches as being a religious phenomena until the time of the Middle Ages when the church decided that it had run out of wealthy heretics in the mainstream part of Christianity and that it would begin to define sorcerers 
and neighborhood midwives as being a religious menace. They invented something known as gothic witchcraft. This is the classic Walt Disney stereotype of the ugly little old lady, occasionally the stark raving gorgeous young lady, who dressed in solid black and went out consorting with the devil and would gather with other witches at events called sabbats, the purpose of which was to blasphemously parody Christian ceremonies, to worship the devil, and to engage in evil activities. Using this stereotype, which they invented pretty much half out of whole cloth and half out of a number of stereotypes they had used against Jews and gypsies earlier, the church began a campaign of terror, the peak period of which was from around 1450 to 1750, during which they murdered, raped, maimed, mutilated, enslaved, and otherwise destroyed the lives of somewhere between a quarter of a million and maybe a half a million European peasants, the overwhelming majority of whom were women. Old women, crazy women, uppity women, pretty women who wouldn't sleep with the inquisitors, and so forth. During the Age of Enlightenment, Western peoples decided they weren't going to believe in witchcraft anymore because they didn't want to believe in anything the church said anymore. And for a long period of time, the word witchcraft was pretty much ignored by most English speakers. Around the turn of the century, Sir James Fraser wrote his monumental treatise, The Golden Bough, in which he talked a great deal about magical and religious customs that had been passed down in folklore all around the world with a special attention to Northern Europe. Building on some of his work and some of her own research, an anthropologist by the name of Margaret Murray wrote a series of books, the most famous of which is called The Witch Cult in Western Europe. She postulated the idea that there had been indeed a real live underground religion during the Middle Ages that was responsible for the later witchcraft persecutions. Only her theory was that rather than worshiping the Christian devil, what these people who were called witches had been doing was keeping alive a continent-wide, universally structured religion of the worship of Dianus and Diana, an old Roman god of the woods and the uh, virgin huntress so familiar to us from our classical Greco-Roman studies. And she believed there really had been a religion going on, and that folks actually had been gathering out in the woods, and that the primary reason the church was anxious to get rid of them was that it, this was being used as a cover for revolutionary activities. Going beyond that, a gentleman by the name of Gerald Gardner and a lady friend of his by the name of Doreen Valiente decided to create yet another form of witchcraft, which has come to be known as neo-pagan witchcraft because of the fact that it resembles most of the other religions that have developed in the United States and England that have been called neo-pagan in recent years. In this case, this new religion, now called Wicca, mispronouncing the original word for a male witch, was focused around a horned god of the woods who had two major aspects as a solar deity and as a vegetation deity, and a triple-aspected goddess who was a goddess of the moon, of the sea, and of the earth. And they borrowed a lot of the ideas from Margaret Murray's theories and from the Christian medieval theories and constructed a very nice religion that's extremely popular today that has somewhere between 10 and 20,000 adherents in the U.S., Canada, England, and elsewhere. 
Because it is one system of pagan worship that is relatively easy for people to have access to these days, there have been a number of very fine books written about it. Um, Drawing Down the Moon by Margot Adler is probably among the best discussions of this. I'm going to use neo-pagan witchcraft and its ceremonies as a classic example of some general principles of ritual design and execution. A lot more material on the basic nature of magic and of ritual can be found in my book, Real Magic, also available on the market from Creative Arts. And as long as I'm doing plugs, I will offer my thanks to the Association for Consciousness Exploration, who brought me here and made both this lecture and this particular videotape possible. Now, when Gerald Gardner and Doreen Valiente were constructing neo-pagan witchcraft, they were taking materials from a variety of different sources. They were taking material from Margaret Murray and James Frazier. They were taking material from the Masonic traditions. And they were taking material off the top of their heads and blending it all together to produce something. They were not necessarily the most experienced ritualists in the world, and there are a few glaring gaps in their ritual structure that indicate areas where they should have had something put into the design but didn't. And I'll be discussing those when we get to them during the course of this outline of what a craft ritual is all about. The first major thing that happens when you're doing a neo-pagan craft ceremony is preparation. That is to say, the people who are going to be partaking of the ceremony have to get themselves focused, what they call being grounded and centered. The commonest method by which this is traditionally supposed to be done in the Gardnerian uh, Valencian system is that the leaders of the group, the high priestess and the high priest, as well as the other members of the group, are supposed to take a ritual bath with herbs and salt in the water, cleaning themselves off, not of impurity in the Christian sense of the world is dirty and sinful, but cleaning themselves of extraneous ideas and influences. The emphasis here is on achieving a state of focus. This is the first of a series of cues that each person is giving to their subconscious mind that something special is about ready to happen. So the high priestess will go into the area that's available, she'll take a ceremonial bath, and then having left the bath area, will go off and meditate. As soon as she does that, the high priest, who's second in command, goes in and does the same thing. When he's finished, the other officers of the coven will proceed to do the same thing, and then the rank-and-file members of the coven. So that one by one by one, each person who's going to be taking part in this ceremony cleans themselves physically and psychologically of everything that is a distracting influence. And they begin the long process of focusing themselves to get ready to do a magical religious ceremony. Now, while the main officers of the ritual are going through this process, secondary officers and other members of the group are supposed to be getting the site prepared for doing the ceremony. Now, that can be extremely simple or extremely complex, depending on whether or not they're going to do the ritual indoors or outdoors, whether or not they're going to be inscribing a circle on the ground or on the floor, and if so, are they going to have to write magical names around the outsides of the circle? What are, are they going to make it a permanent mark on the ground or floor or something that's temporary? An altar has to be set up 
with his ceremonial tools made available on the altar in precisely the spot they're supposed to be so the priest and priestess can just reach down and find the tool exactly where it's supposed to be that they need at any given moment and so forth. I have a tendency to strongly advise that the circle should be marked out on the ground in some fashion that is visible because this has a far more powerful impact on the mind of the participants, especially the deep mind. Now, I'm going to get into questions about the precise three-dimensional shapes of the magical circles in a few minutes. For now, what I want to emphasize is that while this religious spiritual preparation is going on for the leaders of the ceremony, the rank and file are making sure that the physical site is set up. This can be as simple as sweeping and vacuuming the room or as complex as carving all sorts of symbols and runes on the floor or on the ground. If you're doing it in a rented apartment, you may not want to carve things on the floor, depending on the attitude the landlord happens to have. Now, when it's time to, to officially begin the ceremony itself, it's best when you have a clear-cut opening. This is true of any kind of ceremony that you might ever be doing, whether you're doing a ceremony that's Christian Kabbalistic or a Buddhist ceremony or a Druidic ceremony or anything else. It's always best to have a clear-cut signal that, all right, everybody, now the ceremony's starting. So that's what's usually done. Somebody will ring a bell or announce, now is the time for us to begin our rites. Now, in the classic Gardnerian process, uh, the folks would gather together in a line, usually two by two, male and female, and file into the circle from a particular direction. When they got to the circle area, they would be greeted by the high priest and the high priestess, or sometimes the maiden and the summoner, if they're of opposite genders, who would kiss each person as they entered the circle and give them a ceremonial greeting. You know, hi, glad to see you, glad you're here. Uh, only with high-fluting words to make people realize, okay, we're switching into a magical consciousness here. Um, the uh, Valentinian process, again, uh, frequently had an emphasis on scourging. Now, Gerald Gardner, having been raised in the British boys' school tradition, was very big on flogging and flagellation. He got off on it. Um, Gardnerian covens traditionally had a small scourge as one of the ritual tools. And they didn't beat people with it particularly severely, but people would get the equivalent of being spanked a few times as part of the quote-unquote ritual purification before they entered the circle. And this was designed to add a certain lightweight uh, glow of eroticism about the events. Most modern neo-pagan organizations leave the scourge completely out of the ceremony. They have other methods of inducing that feeling of playful eroticism. Um, the commonest of which, of course, is doing the ceremonies naked or sky-clad. Uh, Gerald Gardner was real big on everybody being naked and sky-clad, and it's very exciting the first dozen times or so you go to a ceremony where everybody's nude until you begin to realize that most people aren't very exciting when they're nude. <laughs> because most people's bodies are not in very good shape. But nonetheless, that's another little element that is frequently used. Um, some groups, as part of their preparation, will have put magical robes on. Others will have put cords with ceremonial knives, necklaces, and other pieces of jewelry on, so that even though they're naked, they still have these objects draped about various portions of their anatomy, which signal 
again, to the low self or the subconscious mind that there's a ritual about to take place. Now, once everybody has filed into the circle, the next step that takes place in a classic uh, neo-pagan craft ceremony is something to begin the creation of a group mind. Sometimes everybody will chant a particular mantra, like good old-fashioned OM. Sometimes people will have a song they will sing. Sometimes they will do a dance. A very common dance out on the West Coast in the California traditions of witchcraft, such as Nerugd and the uh, traditions that uh, Starhawk has founded, involve uh, a dance called the Spiral Dance, which begins with everyone facing outwards in the circle, holding hands, and then beginning to dance in a counterclockwise direction, chanting a particular song. And after a while, the high priestess lets go with one hand and begins to lead the circle in an inward spiral towards the center of the circle. When she gets to the center of the circle, she turns around 180 degrees and begins to dance in a clockwise direction, kissing each person as she walks by. Now, in the old-fashioned original N-R-O-O-G-D, New Reformed Orthodox Order of the Golden Dawn, tradition of the neo-pagan craft, all the women would kiss all of the men and versa visa as they passed by. However, California being California, this very swiftly degenerated into everybody kissing everybody, since nobody wanted anybody's feelings to be hurt. So, by the time you have finished kissing everybody in the circle, and it has opened back up again, and people have joined hands once more, you are now dancing in a clockwise direction with everybody holding hands and reunited in the shape of a circle. This allows every single person in the circle to have some sort of intimate connection with every other person in the circle. Now, by some traditions of the craft, everyone in the group should have had some sort of intimate connection with everyone in the group anyway, at some point in the past. This at least arranges that if it's never happened before and renews that relationship. It is the first step in the creation of a group mind. In any other kind of group ceremony, it is necessary to have everybody thinking roughly similar thoughts at the same time, generating exactly the same flavor of psychic energy. And I wish the language were a little more precise so I could state it in much more scientific sounding terms, but I'm afraid I can't. You just try to get everybody operating on the same wavelength. Now, Again, this is more mild eroticism, all of this kissing and hugging. And indeed, a lot of the craft involves mild eroticism. That's because most groups are too chicken to have anything heavier than just mild eroticism. At this point in the ceremony, having gotten everybody into your circle area, it's time to do what's called the specification of sacred time and space. That is to say, you have a part of the ceremony where the people who are leading it announce that, all right, we're here now, we're organized, we're all together, we're going to do some magic. This is a place that is not a place. This is a time that is not a time. We are going to be in between the worlds. And therefore, we should be focusing on understanding who we are and what we're doing here and now. Now, this is the point where they start doing what's usually called the casting of the circle. Now, there are a wide variety of ways in which circles are cast. And before I go into that, I have to go into a further history on neo-pagan witchcraft.
One of the primary sources from which Gerald Gardner took his magical technique was the Greater Key of Solomon, one of the classic works of what's known as Goetic magic. In the Goetia, a magician in the classic high Kabbalistic style would make a small magical circle on the floor or ground around him and would also make a small magical triangle some distance away. The purpose of the small circle was to keep demonic energies out of the area that the magician was working in. The purpose of the triangle was to keep demonic energies in the triangle because the whole point of the ceremony was that the Goetic magician was going to use the law of names, words of power, various magical techniques to quote-unquote summon up a demon into the triangle. Now the primary breakthroughs that Gerald Gardner made on this topic apparently were cribbed partly from the Greater and Lesser Keys of Solomon and partly from the rituals of a group called the Great Brotherhood of God or the GBG. This was a Kabbalistic pre-Crowleyan group that operated in Southern California and had a magical technology that involved the casting of circles and the invoking of spirits at the four quarters and etc., which I'll get into a little bit more in a couple of minutes. However, what Gerald Gardner decided to do, and Doreen Valiente backed him up in this, was firstly, he expanded the magical circle so that instead of just holding the magician and one or two assistants, it could hold up to 13 people, the classic Christian idea of a coven. So you had to have a much larger circle. He settled on nine feet, probably, as Sybil Leek once said, because uh, you, you need at least nine feet to get 13 people to be able to fit in one circle and be able to move without poking each other in the ribs with their elbows. Also, any larger than nine feet, and you can't fit it into the average living room. And if there's one thing that the neo-pagan craft has become over the years, it's living room religion. So they decided they would make the circle at least nine feet in diameter. And the focus of the circle would not be keeping evil energies out of the circle, but rather focusing the magical energies of the group within the circle until such a time as they were ready to release it in the casting of a spell. So... Having done their spiral dance and having gotten people a little bit horny but not so excited that they can't pay attention to the ceremony, the high priestess, occasionally with the assistance of the high priest, will now proceed to quote-unquote cast a circle. Usually this is done by going around the circle four or five times with various magical tools, each of which symbolizes one of the classic four elements earth, water, air, fire, and occasionally a fifth element of spirit. Um, this is a little closer to being, again, uh, medieval Christian Kabbalah as a technique rather than old-time paganism, but they've been using it for a long time, and it ties in with certain root concepts in the Indo-European languages that basically use earth and air and fire and water as the definitions of all that exists. So in essence, what the priestess is doing when she casts the circle over and over again with each of these elements is saying to the subconscious minds of all the participants, we are marking off this area in every single way that is possible because earth, air, fire, and water constitute everything that is. 
And spirit is going to be what we're going to have in the center of it because it's a religious circle. Now, there's some confusion among neo-pagan priests and priestesses as to exactly what the psychic shape of the energy field is that they create in this process. For example, some folk think that really all that's happening is that the magic circle is, a is on a horizontal plane and when they are going around and around creating it, they think of a, a, a glowing energy line on the floor. Others think of it as erecting these walls of psychic energy with different elemental flavors that just rise up in a straight column. Some think of it as a cone, where the base of the cone is the nine-foot diameter circle on the floor. Some think of it as a sphere or a hemisphere, again, centered on the circle in the floor. What I have seen in the past that has worked the most effectively is if the visualization involved when the circle is being cast is that you are making it a sphere of energy if you're outdoors, uh, a hemisphere of energy if you're indoors and you have neighbors living under you who might be a little bit freaked out by suddenly seeing this glowing ball of energy appearing from their ceiling. These are things that can be experimented with. The point is that you're going to do it over and over again for each of the four elements. And when that's done, people very frequently will then do an invocation in the exact center of the circle focused towards the elemental quality of spirit, the missing fifth element. Having marked out in a symbolic fashion the exact shape and location of the circle, people then go into protection and orientation of the circle. That is to say, they want to make it abundantly clear to everybody's subconscious minds what directions are which, north, south, east, and west. This is frequently combined with the elemental invocations of entities that are known as the Lords of the Watchtowers. The Lords of the Watchtowers are spiritual entities who, again, are taken primarily from the Masonic traditions. They are thought of as roughly equivalent to the chief elementals of the four elements. You know, uh, the head salamander, the head gnome, the head sylph, uh, the head undine, and so forth. And these spirits are more or less summoned to the edge of the circle in the classic fashion that the Goetic magician used to summon them, very obnoxiously and arrogantly. I summon you, now get yourself over here now. In recent years, there's been more of a push to make that a little more polite and to uh, request that these spiritual entities, who are very vaguely conceived of, should please make themselves available and stand guard at those four quarters. Now, rather than using uh, head elementals for the four elements, a lot of people will pick favorite gods and goddesses that they ask to attend those four quarters. This doesn't work too well, but people do it anyways. And some people will ask sacred totem animals to appear at the four quarters. And th this will be done with a very strong visualization, like they have a bull in the north and a lion in the south, an eagle in the, in, uh, the east, a dolphin in the West, and so forth. Whatever a given group has decided is a symbol of an animal connected with that element and that direction. The purpose of this, again, is primarily to convince the subconscious minds of the participants inside the circle that there are powerful spiritual forces protecting them from evil coming from that direction, although why they'd be so paranoid as to assume that evil would be coming from that direction, I don't know. 
and to further convince them that if energy starts leaking from the circle, these spiritual entities will close up the leak. Sort of like the Dutch boy putting his whole finger in the hole in the dike. Having protected and oriented the circle, if they didn't do it before, the average high priest or priestess will do something focusing around the concept of the exact center of the circle, tying into a nice, neat shape all of the energy patterns that are supposed to be present in the circle at that time. Now, so far, most of what I've been talking about, preparation, getting the site ready, doing a clear-cut opening, creating a group mind, specifying that, that this is sacred time and sacred place, um, are all things that are done in most of the world's religions when they're doing religious rituals. You can find pretty clear parallels to these in most of the mainstream and most of the minority belief systems that are available now. However, at this point in the ceremony, there is a stage that is missing from the standard craft ritual, to wit, the reinforcement of the group mind and the sending of power through the center of the circle to the other world. That is to say, in most religions at this point, people will feed the gods through the performance of some kind of sacrifice. Um, in the old days, this was done through sacrificing an animal or some plants. In modern terms, most groups do this by saying extra prayers at this point or by generating energy through any of the various techniques that are known to generate psychic energy. And this power, this mana, is fed through a gate that opens up in the middle of the circle, between the circle and the other world. Now, why craft ceremony doesn't have this missing step, I honestly don't know. There's no particular reason in craft metaphysics why that step shouldn't be there, except for the fact that I think it simply didn't occur to uh, Uncle Gerald or Aunt Doreen to include it, and therefore, none of the people who were imitating them when they constructed their craft magical technique thought about it either. Nonetheless, what should be done at that point in a craft circle is feeding energy to the gods in some fashion through prayer or praise or dance or something else that will create psychic energy that can be sent to the gods. Now, the reason why you have to do this becomes obvious when you think about what the next step is. The next step is a return flow of energy from the other side. Now, in most of the world's religions, until very recently in human history, there was a very practical concept of what I call the worship bargain. That is to say, people felt that the gods were just as dependent upon human beings as human beings were upon the gods. The gods needed human worship in order to prosper. And the general idea behind the worship bargain was that human beings who believed in a particular divinity would feed energy into that divinity on a day-in, day-out basis merely because they were thinking about them. And on the psychic magical level of reality, that makes a great deal of sense because every time you think about a given concept, you put more power into that concept in the collective unconscious. And if you happen to belong to a particular religion where you have gods and goddesses who are a routine part of your definition of reality, you're going to feed energy into them on a regular basis. Now, with the worship bargain involved, you can feed energy into the god and goddesses' savings account in Mount Olympus Savings and Loan, 
and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and feeds on itself and begins to accumulate interest. When you are doing a worship ceremony, the primary essence of what you're doing from a magical point of view is you're putting in a little extra energy with the group as a whole focused on doing it through a gate to the other world and triggering a catalytic response. That is to say, there will be a much stronger return flow of energy from the deities. Now, the deities can afford to do this because you're feeding them energy on a day-in, day-out basis, and they never send as much back as they have available. So, this winds up setting up a very comfortable ecological system as far as the uh, psychic energy fields are concerned, because human beings can continue to feed the gods on a day-in, day-out basis, and when they happen to need some magic or a miracle done, the gods feed the energy back. Not all of it, but enough to get the job done. And since the average god or goddess has enormous amounts of psychic energy available because people have been worshipping him or her for a very long time, um, this doesn't weaken the deities particularly. It encourages, in fact, their worshippers to, for the next six weeks or six months or six years, continue, feed energy, continue feeding energy into the divinity. Fine. So, this catalytic effect is triggered by the people in a worship ceremony deciding that now's the time to do that, that they're going to feed a burst of energy to the other world through the magical center that is the center of all time and space that they've consecrated in their, in their circle or in their worship area. And the gods will say, oh, we're being worshipped. Well, it's time to send some energy back. And there are a wide variety of ways in which this energy can be sent back. Now, in the craft, the process of manifesting the return flow of divine energy is a part of the ceremony that is traditionally known as calling down the moon, taken from an old classical reference to the witch. The standard traditional neo-pagan craft concept, drawing down the moon means that the goddess, quote-unquote, who is being worshipped, possesses the high priestess and speaks through her and is there to give advice and assistance to the members of the circle. Some groups also do something called drawing down the sun. Those who think that they ought to bring the male divinity down as well will do that after they've brought down the goddess. Now, there's only one problem with this, and that is that when they try to draw down the moon, most of the time, most groups don't actually get anything to happen. What happens is that the high priestess will then proceed to recite, or worse yet, read from a book, some extremely bad poetry. And this is thought to constitute the actual manifestation of the goddess. That has changed in recent years with some groups attempting to have their high priestess study trance-working techniques and hypnotherapeutic techniques so that the priestess can disassociate her conscious mind from her body and let someone or something else take over and begin speaking to the members of the congregation. The primary reason that there's difficulty at that point in the ceremony is that most neo-pagans do not understand the important technical distinction between possession and inspiration. Now, possession is very often happens fairly frequently. In the classical meaning of the term, inspiration means being breathed through. The idea that the divinity being invoked makes a psychic connection, or if you want to think of it from the other direction around, the 
High Priestess makes a psychic connection to that part of the collective unconscious that answers to the name of the goddess, and there is an energy flow that carries information with it. And the idea is supposed to be that the goddess is then capable of speaking through the mind of the priestess through the process of implanting ideas into her head, which she can then share with the members of the group. Possession, on the other hand, is a much messier and more spectacular phenomenon. Um, if any of you have ever seen films of uh, Vodun ceremonies, for example, in which one of the uh, gods of Vodun, who are usually referred to as the Loa, should happen to possess one of their worshippers, um, that person will fall over on the ground, they will froth at the mouth, they will go through a great deal of physical anxiety and movement until finally they calm down, stand up, and begin speaking in a West African language and performing miracles. Now, possession is much more spectacular than inspiration is and is utterly unmistakable when it really happens. Point of fact, this has led to the ancient saying that possession is nine-tenths of the loa. You can get possession in a neo-pagan craft situation, but it is very, very rare. You're much better off if you design your ceremony based on the assumption that what's actually going to happen will be an inspiration. Now, back in the days when the Christians were writing propaganda about Gothic witchcraft, they claimed that the devil would show up at these Black Sabbaths and no, he would not play rock and roll. What he would do is give, he would listen to everybody's reports of all the evil they had done in the last few weeks, and he would give them instructions on how to do more evil, basically spell casting techniques, and would help the group as a whole cast a major evil spell if that indeed was on the agenda for that uh, particular meeting. Margaret Murray, when she was writing her books, decided that it was the goddess Diana who was supposed to show up at these meetings and give the assembled witches instruction on how to cast spells and assist them in so doing if they needed it. Gerald Gardner and Doreen Valiente decided that the craft goddess, this unspecified vague synthesis of all known goddesses, was going to show up in the circle and give her worshippers instruction and assistance in spell casting. Now, this makes for some interesting changes from other religions' approaches to spellcasting. Most of the time, when you have a religion in the modern world, they don't call it spellcasting when they're doing prayers. That's considered tacky, it's too honest, it gets you in trouble. So they'll say that uh, they make the connection to the god they're worshipping, and he, it's always a he under these circumstances, uh, listens to their prayers, and if he's in the mood, will grant the miracle that they want. With the neo-pagan witches, on the other hand, the goddess comes through the priestess in some fashion or another, if you're lucky. If Let's assume that she does, and that you have a state of inspiration. What the priestess is then supposed to do is to instruct the members of the group on new incantations, new mantras, a new dance, new methods of raising psychic energy, and if they have a spell that is supposed to be done that evening, whether it be a healing spell or a weather working or getting someone a job or anything else like that, she will then, as representative of the goddess incarnate, lead that process. 
Now, at this point in the ceremony, most of the power that is going to be used in spell casting is not the divine power of the deity that's been invoked. Because usually that deity isn't there very strongly at the moment. So most of the power at that point is psychic power that is generated by the bodies of the mortals who are present in the circle. And they can use all of the standard traditional methods for raising psychic energy. All right? They may be chanting a mantra or singing an incantation or other song. They may be dancing around in the circle, getting very physically active and strenuous. They may be beating away on drums and going into a trance in that fashion. Um, they may be using some form or another of sexual stimulation. They may be using some kind of mind-altering drugs. Um, and those last two factors are hardly ever used because most people are afraid of them inside the craft as well as outside of the craft. But at least in theory, you're supposed to have available to you the whole gamut of sex and drugs and rock and roll as techniques of raising energy in a pagan circle. So by whatever means a given coven decides they're going to raise the energy, they will then cast a spell. Now, casting that spell is done in the same fashion that you cast a spell under any other circumstances. You generate a lot of psychic energy, you do something that makes sure everybody in the group has a clear-cut idea of both the specific target and the general goal, and you discharge your human energy in the general direction of the target. Now, there are two or three different ways that energy can be discharged. You can discharge it in a straight line from the center of the circle towards whatever it is that happens to be the target you're working on. Or, a lot of people using the term that Gerald Gardner invented, casting a cone of power, quote-unquote, although they have only the vaguest idea of what this cone of power is, will visualize that as they're dancing around and around in the circle or beating their drums or whatever it is that they're doing, that this energy is climbing the walls of a large psychic cone that rises above the circle that everyone is in, and it discharges from the tip of the cone rather like a laser ray headed in the general direction of the target. Um, this is usually done through um, the priestess calling the drop, is what it, the term is used. Everybody's running around and around, and the priestess says, now, and everybody drops to the floor and lets go of the psychic energy they have presumably been building up to that point. And that's when you're supposed to get the flash of energy headed towards the target. Now, there is another psychic technique that is available to people to use under this circumstance that is much more efficient. Whether you're thinking about the energy you are beaming coming from the top of a cone of energy or just from the circle as a whole, if you are sending it towards your target in a straight line, then what you are doing is sending your psychic energy broadcast through normal space and time to reach its target whether it be a person who has a tumor you're trying to erase, or whether it be a cloud that you're trying to push somewhere to change the weather, whatever your target happens to be, you're going through normal time and space, and therefore you're going through normal static, you're going through distance that's going to slow down and fuzz out your message. If you take advantage of the traditional worldwide concepts associated with ritual centers, you can define the center of your circle as having a connection 
was the ritual center of all other circles in the universe. That is to say, your circle that you have cast has a center that you can say, this is the center of the cosmos. As part of your spell casting, you can describe, so that everyone visualizes it, a ritual center around the target. And rather than sending your energy through the space in between you and the target, you feed that energy into the center of your circle where it blinks out of existence and blinks back into existence in the center of the other circle, which happens to be where the target is. Which means you don't go through the space and time in between and you suffer no loss in power or focus of your spell. Much more efficient and effective way of spell casting using a circle technique. All right. The next thing that usually happens at this point is a redistribution of divine energy, otherwise known as cakes and wine or cookies and milk. A very obviously sexually loaded set of symbolism is followed, whereby a wand or a dagger is plunged by the priest into a sacred cup held by the priestess. In some of the more old-fashioned uh, covens, this is actually a sexual ceremony called the Great Rite that gets done. But in most groups are too chicken to do that, being composed of middle-class Americans, so they settle for the symbolism. Well, if they're going to admit that what they're doing is symbolic, I think they really ought to be using a wand instead of a dagger, because I think putting the dagger in the cup is extremely unpleasant and painful symbolism. But that's, you know, my personal aesthetics on the matter. The cup is consecrated to hold the energy of the god and the goddess and is then passed around the circle along with a plate of some sort of cookie or bread type food that is also consecrated so that in the form of both a solid and a liquid food and drink people have something physical that they can eat and this is a very classic standard globally repeated set of symbols about absorbing energy from divinity now this also has the effect of quote unquote grounding people that is to say, there's nothing like eating and drinking to remind you of the fact that you have a body. And a lot of folks will get very, very spacey having just cast a spell, so they need something to get them focused once again on having bodies. Um, this is further augmented by the fact that a large number of covens at this point in the ceremony will engage in what amounts to socializing. So people will get up and say, um, I'm getting ready to give a class or a workshop on this and that, or we're going to be having initiations for this degree two weeks from now. Or something on that order. Announcements. Now, also at this point in the ceremony, very frequently, what you will see are people giving instructions. That is to say, um, the again, the classic Murrayite concept and Gardner's concept of the high priest and high priestess still being possessed by the god and goddess, are going to be giving instructions to the members of the coven in various techniques. So, after everybody has been yammering for five or 10 or 15 minutes, most of the magical energy that was in the area has been sort of deflated. Now, I tend to think that that's not a very good idea, but that is indeed the way it's most frequently done. Um, you get much better results, I think, if you do the redistribution of divine energy before you do the spell casting so that as soon as you have done the invocation of the god and the goddess and you have 
a direct psychic link to these divinities, that energy is transferred immediately to all the members of the circle via the cakes and wine, if you wish, or some other fashion, so that all of the people in the ceremony are filled with some sort of very powerful divine energy, and then they do the spell casting. That way, they have more than just their ordinary mortal energy to put into the spell. They have this extra energy that they have pulled in from the collective unconscious that they are channeling. This also has the advantage that you usually get much better focus and fine-tuning. After you have done the spell casting using the divine energy, you can come up with some other gimmick to get people grounded, even if it's just a meditation to remind people to pay attention to their bodies again. Now, regardless of what order these things are done in, distribution of divine energy, spell casting, and grounding, at this point, you've done the major work of the ceremony. And the important thing to do is to begin carefully and neatly dismantling the psychic structures that you have created. And therefore, what people essentially do is a reversal of what they did at the beginning of the ceremony. That is to say, they will thank the Lord and Lady, the God and Goddess, for having attended the ritual and tell them that if they wish, they may now go back to the other world or stick around, depending on their point of view. One does not dismiss gods and goddesses. That's rude, and they tend to get very upset if you're rude to them. However, you can thank them for their presence, and if they decide they've got another coven to visit that evening, they can go. You can do a dismissal of your totem animals and your elemental spirits, because they exist partly to fulfill those functions of being callable and dismissible. And usually, they'll go without feeling too miffed at the fact that you dismiss them. Um, a lot of people will then go through a process, either all at once or four times, once for each element, of dismantling the circle. Some groups will actually go around the entire circle uh, counterclockwise, the opposite direction in which the circle was cast, with each of the four el elemental tools in reverse order, basically winding up the circle. Just as they put it down the, uh, at the beginning, they take it back up again. And having dismissed the circle energy so that it sort of evaporates and everything is as neat and as clean and as, as it was before they began, they will have some kind of a clear closure. Now, that usually takes the form of an announcement that the ceremony is over. Um, sometimes what they will do is check to see if there's any psychic energy left in the circle. And what they will do is what they will call a grounding, which in this sense means not making people aware of their bodies. It means draining excess energy away into the ground or occasionally into their magical tools. No sense in wasting the energy if it's usable for that. But they will get rid of whatever energy is remaining in the circle and they will do some sort of a traditional phrase to indicate that the ceremony is over, the commonest of which is, merry meet and merry part and merry meet again, i.e., we got together, it's time to go home, let's do it again, sometime next week or next month or whatever. And that signals to everybody who's there that the ceremony is over. There may be a stamping of a staff on the ground or the beating of a drum or the ringing of a bell, but there is some clear-cut, agreed-upon signal that, okay, magic time is over. 
Just as you had a clear-cut beginning to the ritual, you have a clear-cut end. And that's the sort of symbolic neatness that human subconscious minds have a tendency to like. So, that is a very, very fast and superficial overview of the magical structure of a standard neo-pagan craft ritual. I would like to invite you all to stay tuned for a new show on Jackalope Radio called Savage Science. It is done by my very special friend, the brilliant and beautiful Tracy Savage. I think you will all enjoy Tracy's wit, humor, and commentary. So I invite you all to join me in listening to Savage Science tonight on Jackalope 105 FM at 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. This is Marcus Leader, and you have been listening to The Shaman's Brew on Jackalope 105 FM on the Jackalope Media Network.